Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. My next guest is one of the great economic brains in this country. Manoush Shafiq's career has spanned policy and politics and she's worked at some of the best-known national and international institutions. She was the youngest ever vice president of the World Bank and has served as deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund and deputy governor of the Bank of England. Now she works as the director of the London School of Economics and her book, What We Owe Each Other, sets out a new social contract fit for the 21st century. Uh, Manoush, I'm so delighted to have you on the programme. We decided quite recently that we need some serious blue sky thinking at the moment and you definitely tick all of those boxes. I wonder if we could just start with you telling me a little bit about your background because you, you grew up in Egypt but then your family moved to Georgia in the US and then back to Egypt when you were 15 and I wondered how those experiences had shaped who you've become and what it was like um, to be exposed to two such different countries and cultures cultures and also economic situations as I understand it. So I um I think the the lasting impact of that really shaped my thinking both about education and social mobility because my family was pretty comfortable in Egypt. We were nationalized, lost everything, uh, and had to start all over again. And so we sort of experienced massive downward social mobility. And the path up was really through education. You know, my father used to always say, you know, they can take everything away from you except your education. And so uh, it was really through climbing the ladder of educational quality, having not gone to particularly good schools, but over the years going to better and better ones that enabled me to kind of advance, uh, advance in my life. Yes, because you you quote your dad's uh, advice: everything can be taken away, but education. Do you, do do you see it as as the great leveler? Is that where it all begins for you? If, if you want to create a, a more equal society, which we'll go on to talk about, does it have to start with education? 
I do think education is the key. I, you know, everybody always says, oh, you know, social progress is multifaceted. It takes, there's no silver bullet, et cetera, et cetera. And that is all true. But I think if you had to put your finger on the variable that has had the most impact in terms of human progress, I think it's education. Let's talk um, directly then a, a bit about your book and sort of start at the basics because the, the book is about reimagining the social contract. Uh, so what exactly is the social contract? So the social contract is the mechanism by which we produce things that we need to share collectively. And that can be done in the family through how we raise children to what we expect of employers to how we deliver education or healthcare in our societies or how we look after the elderly. And it's not just about the welfare state. The welfare state is an important part of the social contract. It's also about the way we behave in our households, uh, the rules that govern how the workplace operates. And all of those things determine what we owe it each other in society and what we expect of each other in society. I grew up, um, as you probably did, uh, in an era of isms. You know, there was communism and there was fascism sort of just behind my my growing up experience. And there was uh, uh, socialism and there was... And we seem to have progressed to a, a pretty general uh, version of capitalism ac- across the world. I, is that how you see it? And, and do you, would you call it cap- capitalism or individualism, which, which defines it? Yeah. No, we, we have evolved, particularly in the advanced economies, into a sort of individualistic, capitalistic model. But I would caveat by saying that there are many flavors of capitalism out there. You know, capitalism in Denmark looks very different than capitalism in the United States. And the difference is in the social contract underpinning the market economy in those societies. In some countries, you have a very generous social contract in which people are expected to contribute quite a lot, but the society invests a lot in them. And other countries, you have quite threadbare social social contracts in which everybody's kind of on their own. Where does socialism come into it then? It's been a word that's been bandied around almost as an insult in the, in, in the current leadership uh, challenge. Um, and yet it, it also has much more benign connotations. And I wonder where social contract diverges from socialism. I mean, you could say that, that the Scandinavian countries in general, I, I don't want to be specific about Denmark because I don't know enough about it, but do offer a sort of brand of benign socialism, if you will. Well, I think what what they cleverly do is they get the advantages of a market economy while at the same time uh, providing extensive social support to people in those societies. So, you know, an example I give in the book is the way their labor markets work. They have a model that's called flex security, which is you have very flexible labor markets. People lose their jobs all the time. Uh, They have very high levels of labor turnover. But, and and so that's good for employers because they're able to respond to market forces. But if you lose your job, the unemployment insurance that you get is quite generous. It's about 80% of your previous wage. So your living standards don't fall. And you're immediately put into training programs so that you can very quickly find a new job. And so you have a lot of security. And I think it's that marriage of, 
a flexible market economy, but again, a social system that looks after people and gets them back into work that is really appealing. So do you, like everyone else, look to Scandinavia as a, a near perfect model? I mean, it doesn't seem to matter what we talk about on this programme, whether it's, you know, education or environmentalism or, you know, whatever it is, uh, we always end up mentioning, or you know, the health service, we always end up mentioning the Scandinavians. I know. It's it's a bit annoying, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm well, half Norwegian, so I like to try and take some credit for it in some course. way. <laughs> of course you should. No, I mean, they are on the top of the rankings on so many things, including happiness and well-being. Uh, invariably, the Scandinavians come out on top. So they are getting a lot of things right. On the other hand, I don't think everybody can become Norwegian or Scandinavian. <laughs> Or, or Danish or Finnish. Um, and every society will define its own social contract and its own distinctiveness. I think that what's really clever about, what, what I think is really clever about it is there are societies in which you invest a lot in people and you ask a lot of them. And so you invest in their education, you invest in their skills and in their healthcare, but you also ask them to contribute either through taxation or through what's expected in terms of people's behavior in their communities. And I, I think it's, I think what my book is trying to argue is that we need a thicker, richer social contract. Uh, but I'm, I try and avoid being put into an ideological box of whether it's liberal or socialist or capitalist or anything. I think it's, I think it's sort of slightly above that, those debates. It's, it's asking for, I guess if I would have to narrow it down i'm not i'm not saying oh let's grow a lot and let's redistribute that's not what i'm saying i'm saying let's focus a lot on what economists call pre-distribution let's invest in each other invest in early years education invest in education so that people can earn a decent living through the labor market rather than through redistribution it's a really nice idea to be above those debates, those those <laughs> those political divides. But I mean, let's face it, in the world at the moment, you know, I don't think we've ever, I mean, we probably have been, we throw these expressions around, but, you know, we are pretty polarised and we are very tribal uh, when it comes to politics. And a lot of what you suggest in the book would be absolutely abhorrent to well i mean we could start with trump supporters in america but you know i mean we could we could talk about conservatives across the world of a particular caliber so is it is it not a little bit over idealistic to think that this recalibration of how we operate economically can happen without politics being involved. And the reason there were those isms that I mentioned at the beginning was because, in a way, they gave you a clue as to where someone was was coming from. And it does, in the end, boil down also to politics. Yes, there is definitely huge amounts of political and value choices embedded in a social contract. And, you know, there are many ways... I used to be a civil servant and a permanent secretary in government. And, you know, the thing, one of the things I learned is there are many ways to achieve policy objectives and there are trade-offs. You know, in the book, I give the example of healthcare. You know, in the UK, we have a national health service. Everyone loves the NHS. It is a single provider, state-run healthcare system. In Europe, they have a system which is more based on employers and insurance with the state filling in the gaps. And it delivers pretty good health outcomes. In fact, as good sometimes better than the NHS. And I'm pretty agnostic as to between those two. What I think is dreadful is the US healthcare system, which consumes 17% of national income and produces pretty awful healthcare outcomes. And so I guess I try and a little bit 
inform those ideological and political choices with really hard data about just tell me what works. And if that very fragmented US market-based system isn't delivering good outcomes and is really expensive, I'd much rather look at models like the UK or Europe uh, for, for the future. So where have we gone most wrong? Well, <laughs> sorry. That's a big question, Maria. I, I think where we've gone most wrong is that we've allowed ourselves to see many of the trade-offs we face as zero-sum. And we've forgotten that, just as an example, not investing in poor children is going to come back to haunt all of us because those poor children will not have good good educational outcomes, find good jobs, be able to pay tax. Uh, and it's in our interest to invest in poor children, as just as a small example. In the book, I cite this fantastic piece of research on lost Einsteins, on how much we are losing in terms of productivity and innovation in our economy. Because if you happen to be, be born in a poor family or in a poor community, you don't get to fulfill your potential, even if you have very high, say, maths and science skills. And so I think where we've gone wrong is we, you know, we, we've gotten allowed ourselves to get into this kind of fixed pie mentality, as opposed to thinking about how investing in each other increases the opportunities and the pie for all of us. You know, we've, we're trying to divorce it from politics, but it, but it's pretty hard to do that. And I, I wonder if the economic situation we find ourselves in and the one that you want to, to reboot quite dramatically isn't the result of the sort of short-termism of politics and politicians, you yeah. know, nowadays. I mean, I think you've talked about the fact that at, at the LSE, you know, you look to 2030 and forward, you know, beyond. And and I think someone who worked in government said to you, well, we call 2030 8.30 p.m., you know, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's constantly reactive. And that's something that we've seen an awful lot here in this country uh, over the last couple of years. How bad an impact do you think that that's had on us in terms of progress? Well, I think, Mario, you put your finger on it. One of the main drivers of the stagnation in incomes in the UK is short-termism. Um, you know, the UK has had stagnant productivity for the, since the financial crisis in 2008. Median incomes have not moved. We are now 20% poorer than countries we used to consider peers like France or the Netherlands, for example. Uh, and that is driven by short-termism. And how does that play itself out? For example, investment in the UK is very low. Government investment is too low. Private investment is very low because we've had great periods of great instability because we haven't invested enough in the kind of infrastructure and education that makes it attractive for people to invest in, in, in the future. And so that short-termism, which is a result of the way our political system works, the way we elect leaders, I would say we're paying a very heavy price uh, for that. Also uh, relates, I think, to how we treat politicians, though, I suppose, to an extent, and how we pay them and how enticing it seems as a profession. And, of course, in an era when, you know, social media is shouting all day long and all night, um, again, it becomes a very unappealing job. Uh, do you think that it's lost the ability to attract big thinkers? And do you think that the gradual introduction of more women will make a difference in the end? Or, or, or do you think that women can be just as bad uh, short-termists as men? Yeah, well, I do think the incentives matter hugely. And I think 
you know, you look at, I mean, it's a, it's a very different model, but in a country like Singapore, they pay their senior people and political leaders quite, quite high salaries, much higher, you know, five, 10 times more than what we pay in the UK. As a result, they don't have side jobs. They don't, they focus purely on delivering for the country and you get the best and the brightest going into those roles. I would be much happier with a system where we paid political leaders more and reduced their outside interests, for example, so that it could be that it could be squarely focused on the national interest, for example. In terms of women, it's definitely a better thing to have more women in politics. You know, for God's sake, they represent half the population and they have, you know, they, they add huge value. They also add huge amounts of talent. Why would you only draw your leadership from a narrow talent pool? of men. So it would definitely be better. But I do think that unless we change the wider incentives, how we fund our politicians, how we pay them, in some ways, how we elect them, is it, unless we change those, whether they are men or women, they will still be subject to the same pressures of short-termism that we have. Interestingly, you've also said that uh, we haven't found a way to look after the old or the young without women providing free labour which I'm very glad you articulated. How do you propose that this greatest remaining inequity, perhaps in the world, should be solved? And have you fallen prey to it, superwoman? <laughs> the fact that our whole social contract was assuming that women would look after the young and the old for free is probably the biggest pressure that we face. We're in a world today where more women go to university than men, not just in the UK, but globally. And all that female talent, unless we figure out how to enable those women to continue working, is being lost and wasted for our wider society. And the answer is better childcare and men sharing work at home. That's the answer. It's not very complicated. You know, women still do about two hours more unpaid work every day than men in the world. And childcare in the UK is the most expensive in Europe. And countries that do a better job of supporting families through parental leave, publicly provided childcare or financial support to allow them to get help, do a much better job of keeping women in the labor market and in the long run, increasing productivity and overall incomes. And so it, it would be a huge waste if we didn't do a better job on, on both those things. And I, you know, I was blessed uh, with a husband who did more than more than a typical man. <laughs> you're being diplomatic way. now for personal reasons. <laughs> I understand it. It's good to know that you're human. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Manoush, we've talked a lot about what's wrong and a little bit about what needs to change. I think there are sort of four tenants to your plan, if you will, uh, in terms of you would propose a a minimum income for everybody, educational entitlement, basic health care and not poverty in old age. That's what I've scribbled down on my little piece of paper. Uh, so it doesn't quite make sense. But you, I think you probably know what I mean. Tell me a little bit about how you would um, upgrade the social contract. So I, um, I do believe that in a decent society, there should be a, a level below which no one should go. I don't actually support the idea of a universal basic income, which many people argue for, that you would give everyone and everyone a fixed amount, uh, regardless of their level of income, uh, to provide that floor. There are many reasons, and we can talk about that, why. Instead, I think I would encourage, I believe that work is part of the social contract. In every society, able-bodied people are expected to contribute in the middle of their life in exchange for being looked after when they're young and they're old. And so... I would prefer to see greater encouragement to work. And if people don't earn a decent wage through their work, you can top that up through things like earned income tax credits, for example, or in developing countries, cash transfer schemes. So I do think there needs to be a floor, but that floor needs to be, uh, needs to include people working when they're able-bodied. Uh, the second principle would be to share risks more sensibly. You know, the risks around childcare, we all have an interest in children, being raised well to have good educate, good, good early years experiences and good education, because they're going to pay the taxes that are going to pay for our pensions and healthcare. And so I think uh, a social contract where the risks around childcare are shared more efficiently, that we don't just expect parents to carry those risks. And so public provision of childcare and support to, 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 for parental leave and payments to families would ensure that, that those children, particularly children who are born to poor families, are looked after. And so sharing risks like that more sensibly is part of a better social contract. And then finally, investing more in each other. You know, at the moment, if you just look at the UK, our investment in adult learning to help people reskill and in, in a society in which we know people are going to have to work longer, we spend a fraction of what we should spend. And that's an area where we need to provide incentives to companies through, say, human capital tax credits or have the state provide a lifelong learning allowance, which the government is talking about, so that all of us can have opportunities to reskill and retool and continue to contribute to society for far longer. And what do we have to swallow in order to achieve those, um, you know, halcyon dreams? I mean, higher taxes. Um, uh, do we get rid of the, the thrill of the possibility that one day we too might be super rich? I mean, what goes? Some of what I've described is investment, and so it will actually generate a return. But some of what I've described, particularly, say, when you talk about care for the elderly, will increase costs. And 
And we know that healthcare costs are going up and that is almost inevitable. For me, I think the place I would look to to finance that is property taxes and carbon taxes. Property taxes, because property is very undertaxed in the UK, but also globally. And we know that two thirds of global wealth is held in the form of property. And so I think that is, a, is, is an area where, and, and it's also the place where there's the greatest inequality in terms of wealth inequality in the UK. So I would look at taxing property more effectively. And of course, carbon taxation, because it helps us make progress on climate and addressing climate change. Do you see yourself as a radical? I know that you had a, a relatively short tenure at the Bank of England uh, with Mark Carney uh, as your boss. Uh, are, are your ideas seen as a, a little bit out there, unachievable, because they don't fit with the political um, thinking of, of the now? I don't think of myself as terribly radical. And I don't think, you know, I think most mainstream economists would would be persuaded by the evidence uh, that I've provided in the book. I think the bit that's, so I think the evidence is compelling and the, and the, and the arguments are, are persuasive. I think the radical part is putting it all together and saying, we need to rethink the whole deal. And part of the reason I do that is because I think sometimes, sometimes making a problem bigger makes it easier to solve. You know, I think persuading older homeowners to pay higher property yeah. taxes is easier to sell if you say to them, actually, we're going to be able to fund healthcare better and our care system will become more, more effective and, and well-funded. And you can persuade young people to work longer if you say to them, we're going to invest in a really good adult learning program. And so that you might, your career might have to be not 30 years, but 40 years. But during those 40 years, you're going to have a couple of opportunities to reskill and develop new careers that will make your professional life more more rewarding. And so by putting it together, I think you increase the likelihood that people see that it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deal that everyone in society could buy into and benefit from. But an economic revolution has to happen in tandem with politics and people don't trust politicians. So if politicians start taking more money from people, what people think is, here we go, taking the money that I've worked really hard for. You know, people suffering now, particularly with the cost of living crisis, uh, you know, and, and interest rates going up. I mean, you've worked for the Bank of England. I don't know what you think of about what should be done right now, you know, with the projections of them rising to 9.4% um, this month. You know, how do you, how do you persuade the, 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 the political elite for a start that, that, that these are things that are worth doing? And, and, you know, how do you get over that short-termism? Yes, no, it's a, it's a real... Um, it's I, don't, a real... I don't want to depress you or anything, but I'm just <laughs> looking at all the obstacles and I'm feeling slightly yeah. deflated. You know, social contracts invariably get renegotiated in times of crisis. It's hard to argue that we're not in a time of crisis. And, you know, in a combination of the pandemic, the cost of living crisis in the UK, the stagnation in, in median incomes, and climate change after, you know, the heat that we've had in, uh, in recent days, I think there will be pressure on politicians to do better. And I also think social movements have played a really important role in recent years in moving the agenda, you know, whether that's the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion, they have put issues on the agenda that weren't there before. So, you know, I can only hope that those pressures will result in politicians looking for good answers rather than short-term fixes. 
but you know we haven't had that those good that, that sort of long-term vision for quite a while but it feels ripe for change I suppose the pandemic has shown us that we can be radical when we need to be, and and Rishi Sunak, you could argue, was on some levels. Uh, Do you think that any of the candidates right now have a a credible economic plan, something that that looks into the future, or do you think it's all just about getting the job at the moment? What are you hearing? I think um, the focus on who can cut taxes more is kind of typical of the short-termism that you identified as part of the problem um so you know i think nobody you know nobody as yet is is defining that longer-term vision i mean i'm i'm co-chairing uh, something that the lsc is doing with the resolution foundation called economy 2030 to try and develop a long-term vision for the uk economy which which lays out you know the fact that we do have a huge productivity problem. The economy is stagnating. And if we're going to do something about that, we have to invest a lot more. And we have to, you know, we have to see that we are a service economy. And a service economy is about people, basically about people. And it's about investing in people's skills so that they can export services and provide services to the rest of the world that will generate high incomes. And so I hope that that's that's an example of a kind of long-term vision that we can put in out into the political domain so that whoever gets elected they can use some of those ideas for their for their agenda well let's pretend it's me that becomes prime minister and i'm going to appoint you as my chancellor uh what are you going to make me do uh, immediately well mariana what a team we would make i think that would be great so (laughs) so i would say um first i would lay out the deal that you're offering society because you need to be able to show how everyone will benefit uh, and how there's something in it for everyone. And some people will sacrifice uh, some things, but there will be other areas in which they benefit. And I think laying out that vision is, uh, is the first important step. It's also really important for companies in the private sector. Part of the reason investment is so low in this country from the corporate sector is because they haven't had clarity on the government's economic strategy. And every time there's a change in minister, the strategy changes. And so I would be laying out this framework and the strategy and then committing to it and delivering and having a stick to it at this that would reassure both the public and private se- and the private sector that, that the plan will hold. Uh, so that would be where I would start. Okay, well, your audition is over. I'm giving you the job. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining me today. Minouche Shafiq, economist, author and director of the London School of Economics. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your big ideas. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Minouche's book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract, is out now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.